Will I ever watch European news? Hello and welcome to Talking Progress. A strong democracy needs a strong public. That is especially true for a political entity as complex and diverse as the European Union. Over the last decades, we have witnessed that media researchers call the Europeanization of national discourses. European issues such as the Green Deal or the Recovery Fund are being discussed in concurrently the EU member states, but always from a national standpoint. There is very little generally European or cross-border public debate. One effect of this dominance of national discourses is that we tend to understand European politics as a competition between member states and their interests and struggle to think and act in terms of European interests or European common good. In this miniseries, we are taking a closer look at ideas and people who have the power and the will to change this. In this first episode of our mini-series, we will talk about one very specific level that offers great potential for achieving a more European public sphere, cross-border journalism and media cooperation. My name is Paulina Fröhlich and I'm head of the program Future of Democracy at Das Progressive Zentrum and I will be your host at Talking Progress today. In this podcast, we will explore new ideas for social progress in Germany, Europe and across the Atlantic. We will kick off Talking Progress with a mini-series on the European public sphere. In three episodes, we will discuss new and concrete ideas that have the potential to bring Europe closer together. To kick off, we will hear from Christian Czoltwaga, who is currently working on a quite different idea um, how journalism could work compared to what we know in the mainstream. So Christian is an online editor at NOST. NOST is a media NGO, an agency and a network with the aim of strengthening high-quality cross-border journalism. Christian's mission, so to say, is as an online editor at NOST to work towards a more integrated European media landscape. In his work, Christian tries to find answers to the question of how cross-border journalism can reach international readership and how this collaborative form of journalism can be sustainably financed. Christian, welcome to Talking Progress. We are very excited to have you. Thank you, Paulina. I'm also very happy to be here. We begin every episode with one specific idea that can help achieve social progress. Christian, you have an idea for how we can make European public and citizens more connected. What is it? Yes, thank you. So um, right now, during the last year, we um, experimented with a new idea, a new newsletter at NOST. Um, we had the... Uh, we talked with a lot of journalists all over Europe uh, during the last years about uh, what kind of new experiments we could do when trying to make an alternative journalism to the classic foreign reporting model. Because a lot of journalists who are dealing with uh, European topics and maybe are foreign correspondents themselves, uh, they feel like um, this national uh, narratives, this one-sided reporting, Is, is not enough and they really long for uh, more collaboration with their colleagues, but there are not so many opportunities for it. So at NOST, uh, our goal is to kind of go into the unknown and build some new ideas. And uh, one of our ideas that we developed uh, right now is a so-called weekly focus newsletter. 
Um, it's a cross-border collaborative European newsletter where we bring each week five journalists from different European countries together and let them discuss uh, on one European topic that affects or connects all of us. And uh, for us, it's also imperative that their voices are valued in like an open editorial process. So it is not like I am sitting in Berlin with my maybe German bias and trying to explain my colleagues from, let's say, Croatia or Russia or France what to think. But it's really an open process where we want to hear the different perspectives and um, also show our readers Uh, the diverse, complex, and interconnected European reality. And it's also really important for us and us, since we come from, uh, our background is mostly in a regional focus on Eastern Europe, but in the meantime, we expanded it to all Europe, uh, that we also dig out voices and perspectives that are underrepresented or overlooked in the more mainstream European media debate. So in That's basically uh, our current uh, project we're working on. And um, yes. <laughs> yes, I definitely want to know more. So you were just um, you were just telling me about the background or the history of NOST. I would like to dig deeper here and ask, was there a specific moment or experience that motivated you personally to go beyond national coverage and pursue cross-border journalism? Well, first of all, we at Anost, we have a long tradition of reflecting uh, about foreign reporting. Basically, since we were founded 15 years ago, um, the motivation was to improve the quantity and quality of, of reporting on Eastern Europe, a region that was widely uncovered in the German media discourse. And if it was covered, uh, often tainted with many prejudices, cliches and ignorance. Um, so in the course of the years, we also realized that aside from classical foreign reporting, which is still uh, important, um, that it's also necessary to experiment more with new kinds of cross-border collaboration between journalists um, from different countries and to, to plant a seed, so to say, uh, for a more integrated European media sphere. Um, but when it comes to a special moment, I, I remember that it was, I think, in 2018 on our annual media conference where we bring uh, together journalists, correspondents from all over Europe. And it was in, in Warsaw that year. Uh, I sat on a panel and at some point I was just uh, speaking my mind. <laughs> I said, uh, let's experiment more with European journalism, whatever that is. And uh, people started laughing and clapping. And after the uh, the panel, they came to me and said, "Yes, it's actually what I feel. There, it's it's there's so much potential." And we, they all wanted to to do this kind of European journalism, whatever that is. But they a lot of them felt like there are not so much opportunities for that. But that there is a need to to go into this more unknown space and. So this moment was also some, uh, a moment where uh, I feel motivated that that our ideas are good and there are actually people who, who feel the same way. Hmm? Yeah. And who were those people approaching you in the room? Because I was wondering who your target group is. Do you want to provide niche articles for people specifically interested in certain things or regions? Or are you trying to reach a broader audience? Well... I mean, generally, uh, it's always nice to, to reach as many people as possible. Um, since we are in journalist network and 
we don't only want to make good journalism, but also the way we are doing the journalism, in this case, cross-border collaborative. Uh, so it's also part of our mission and our immediate target group are, so to say, also the journalists, mm. because this kind of collaboration is not something a lot of journalists are used to, even experienced journalists. We saw uh, collaborate, collaborative journalism, cross-border journalism, and investigative journal, uh, journalism during the last decade a lot. But what we are doing is really to get them together, to discuss together, to, to create the, the newsletter together, not only on big topics, but also on everyday topics. And this, a lot of journalists used to work alone a lot of the time, and there's a lot to learn for them. So it is also our mission with this newsletter to reach European journalists, European editors, European media to, to let them be part of our experiment and maybe hopefully uh, think, oh, why, sh why shouldn't we start to, to make some kind of this uh, experiment? And I would love it if especially larger media with more money and more reach would at some point also adapt uh, this kind of ideas. Yeah, okay. It, it sounds a little bit like the train-the-trainer model, I know, from civil society, that you're also trying to reach journalists to inspire them. Um, well, it's it's a part of it, but we, our goal is still that our newsletter is interesting for readers who are generally interested uh, in, in European topics, maybe have basic knowledge about some current events, mm. but are eager to learn more about other perspectives to to understand what uh, societies in other countries are thinking or yes so it is it is also focused on the readers of course because we are still doing um, journalism and it's yeah um, and this is also an interesting question right because what is a European audience um, is it enough to say well they are all <laughs> on one continent um, no. no but but It's, again, a point where we, um, of course, we made some bullet points and said, okay, we want people who maybe feel a little bit European, who are interested in, in other countries, etc. But it's also something that you just have to start. And while doing it, you also get feedback from readers. You, 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 you understand better who you are writing for. And um, I think a lot of time people maybe from commercial media would answer the questions of what, what is that? I don't want to invest uh, resources into this so-called European audience, but we are in a position where it's our mission to at least try to do it and, and see what happens. Yeah, I understand. I've got one more question uh, for you, Christian, before we bring in our second guest. Why did you opt for non-profit instead of a commercial financing model? Well, first of all, because we are a non a non profit organization, <laughs> and um, it's not really uh, our our um, yeah, it's it's not something we can just do uh, commercial uh, reporting. But uh, at some point, uh, we will also try to to um, make a community model or uh, raise donations, etc. Um, but this is an important question, and because I think it's really important that. Um, there are more media entrepreneurs or in the big uh, media publishing houses, so people who actually want to earn money uh, with media, that they are understanding the potential but also the necessity of this kind of uh, new ideas and, and, and ways of, of, of creating a, a more European discourse mm. because at the end it is also really hurting Europe 
in many ways if if the if the informations about each other are not flowing in 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 in, in qualitative ways and mostly flowing very one directional because for example in germany Uh, the media system is still compared to other countries and you're very privileged regarding resources, although we are complaining a lot <laughs> and it's okay. But uh, for example, in other countries, especially if you look um, towards Eastern Europe, there are oftentimes not, maybe there are a handful foreign correspondents at all, um, if there are any, because the media are under pressure by government, under economic pressure. In these countries, people are not even used to read as many uh, stories or getting information about Europe or, or what's happening. So they are really easily manipulated uh, by, by specific actors or governments. And it's also a question of solidarity, maybe, to... to um, to think about structures where we can collaborate so that they also get better information. That is true. And solidarity as a key European value will be the topic of our third episode in the series. So stay tuned, dear listeners. Christian, having listened to your initiative about cross-border journalism and media cooperation, I would like to do what you just already started and broaden the scope a little bit to find out where cross-border journalism is currently standing in Europe and what potential it offers for a more integrated European public sphere in the future. For that, I would like to take in our second guest, who has been working in this field for many years. I'm very excited to welcome Patrick Leusch. He is head of European Affairs at Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster, and has many years of experience in media development and international media cooperation. Currently, he is working on a very ambitious project, a digital European media platform called Enter. Welcome to Talking Progress, Patrick. Hello, Paulina. Hello, Christian. Thank you very much for having me. Patrick, let me start with this. I have a media morning routine. I wake up, turn on the public broadcasting radio station Deutschlandfunk, I scroll through Twitter, and I read a couple of articles in the daily newspaper that I have subscribed to. As an expert in European cross-border media cooperation, What do you hope my media morning routine in 2030 will be? Will the idea of non-profit cross-border journalism that Christian just described to us, will, be, will it be part of it? Well, definitely, I think that uh, a best case scenario would be that you, Paulina, your morning routine in 2030 would be that you host a daily um, pan-European discussion show on Clubhouse as a moderator, <laughs> which integrates a lot of different views in, in a quite new way of, of direct exchange in, in, a, in, a, in a good combination of expert view and, and, and non-expert view uh, at the edge of, you know, um, having a, a structured dialogue on one hand, but being very open uh, on, on another hand. But uh, apart from, from, from joking, I think, um, yes, um, cross-border collaboration uh, is, is key. You can see that in a variety of initiatives that have been uh, raised and grown over the past years. Um, there is, uh, for, in, for instance, investigation seems to me a field of collaboration which has uh, turned very important. Uh, both for uh, startups, for new new initiatives, for crowdfunded initiatives of journalism, but also for the big players. Um, 
as it it demands a lot of efforts that you cannot deploy by a single media anymore when you look at certain topics which turned also to be more global um so you have to join forces and that is a very interesting um development um on the other hand um there is a long way to go when you look at uh, cross border or collaborative journalism it's it's kind of trendy yes um but you have to have a closer look on what 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 is meant when when you say collaborative working um and again there are a lot of borders that have not been crossed yet by media which are still operating um in a national setting in a national market economically and also in a national mindset mm. you you just highlighted the importance of joining forces and this may be part of the answer you might give to the question I, i wanted to ask you but maybe we can take a deeper look here so the idea of cross border media cooperation in europe is not new um over the past years and decades we've seen Many attempts to do this on a grassroots level, such as Christian's initiative, as well as on mass media level, like LENA, which stands for Leading European Newspaper Alliance. Yet media and public discourses predominantly still function on a national level. Cross-border journalism remains in a marginal phenomenon so far. Why have all these attempts failed? What do you think are the main levers to really mainstream cross-border media cooperation in Europe, Patrick? Mm. Uh, it's a little bit as you have said cross border journalism is not new but there is always room for innovation in the practices to bring about more european public discourse i think that's very different we have to distinguish between technically collaboration among journalists and media which can be driven by a lot of different interests uh, be it a single challenge Uh, be it uh, commercially, economically driven, for instance. But I doubt that in many cases it's driven by the idea to overcome certain boundaries in the perception, for instance, uh, or in the, uh, in, in the dialogue with, with audiences. So the, the question is really what is, the, what is the objective of such kind of collaboration? And maybe we can come to that a little bit uh, closer. I believe that a common mistake also is to go straight to producing content that, that is entirely European and just aimed at audiences who already live in the European dream. These audiences, however, are still relatively small and I think an important lever is to actually develop this audience first. So this Europeanization of national media in the sense is a necessary step to promote European perspective, which then fuel the demand for actual European media. And to pick one point um, that Christian mentioned also, I think it's, it's really a matter of mindset. Um, if in Brussels um, and in the capitals of Europe, um, the ones that talk to audiences about Europe are foreign correspondents. These are not domestic correspondents. These are foreign correspondents. So the whole mindset understanding Europe is from a, a foreign policy perspective. And if we cannot overcome this point, then it will be very difficult. Europe as a, as a domestic issue, Uh, that is the beginning of, of, of many, many changes. 
And if if we use to see and from whatever perspective and whatever media, but if we look at Europe as a as a foreign policy issue, so then we remain still in the same in the same hassle, I think. Okay. Well, Christian, can we, can we can we circle back to you and and put it specifically? What skills do journalists require in order to practice this cross-border media cooperation and journalism, and how do they acquire them? Uh, okay. Before I answer this, I just wanted really to applaud uh, Patrick for mm -hmm. the last um, remark about the mindset, because just the word foreign reporting, not only when it comes to Brussels or so, but it it, it actually tells everything. It tells <laughs> like. Even, you know, if you are reporting about Italy or so, you're a foreign reporter, so you're making a difference between them and us. That's something foreign and we are not foreign. So I think it really catches a lot of the structural problems in one word. And that's why we also suggest or we use more European reporting as our goal. Regarding your question about the skill set, foreign correspondents in the classical sense are normally very well trained uh, in, in translating contexts, uh, in, in uh, navigating in other countries. They are very well connected a lot of times. And often they have very specific country expertise, language expertise. And these are actually very important uh, um, competencies that uh, they could already use. That's why also we are working together with established foreign correspondents or journalists who, who mostly write about other countries. Um, what I see is often missing is an ex when it comes to European policy is an expertise about, uh, yes, European politics, um, legal and, and other, um, other stuff. So especially when we work together with uh, editors, journalists who are not foreign correspondents, but are working for media, Uh, just domestic media, uh, we can we can feel that enough often, and um, so basically everyone can learn these skills. They just need the opportunity for it um, when they work together with other people. When you put five different editors, journalists from different countries into one room and tell them try to identify common topics that are not like the big geopolitical topics or foreign policy topics that are concerning your countries, that are concerning maybe your local communities, they will find these topics. We did that also in another project and it was really interesting. And then we tried to find a new way of texts and, and, and combining these perspectives so that also the readers who are normally not used to hear maybe from about the topics that concerns their local city, Uh, some perspective from just another local city in another country, which maybe has the same problems. Um, so we also try to, to, to get the reader used to this kind of um, ideas. But again, you really just have to start practicing these collaborations and on the way you will also learn these skills. Yeah. So I understand that European reporting should not be reporting about EU politics and institutions only, but talking about something from a European's perspective, which can be, I don't know, food or whatever it is, family issues. You touched upon this topic earlier, Patrick, and I would like to ask you, is this a possibility how we can make sure that European media reaches beyond the cosmopolitan, let's call them pro-European elites? Yes, that is what um, we specifically try with this new uh, initiative, uh, with this network or platform and 
call, call, call it whatever, it's very difficult to say, uh, uh, which is ENTER. ENTER is a collaboration uh, among 11 media uh, companies uh, and foundations in, 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 in Europe, but um, it, it should go beyond later. Um, and one main idea is um, to give a space in mainly over social media um, channels uh, for a dialogue and debate about commonalities and differences in, 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 in Europe and the question, how do, do we want to live in this continent together? Uh, we, are, we are not supposed to discuss about Europe and we are not supposed to discuss about Euro European politics and we, we don't count on the incentives, so the so-called incentives of, of Europe that often are no longer really... Um, really important for young Europeans, and we we think that there is really a a kind of uh, of gap between the Erasmus uh, community, which is cosmopolite, uh, which profits from incentives that Europe so far has given to young Europeans. But this is only a part of of young Europeans. The other part is not attracted by cosmopolite ideas. Um, they want. They want to be happy uh, and make their life at home. Um, and often Europe has ignored the fact that this openness that uh, Europe uh, provides for customers, for students, for jobs, for growth, for you know travel and so, that, that is not everything. And um, that's why we don't want to uh, to flag this European so-called incentives, but we want to launch a, a, a deeper dialogue and debate about what's important for young Europeans in their home setting and what is the link or could be a link uh, for them to Europe. That is tricky. And uh, we, we, we started the project by not inventing topics uh, or collaboration on reporting, but we started saying, look, we have to work collaboratively on the topics and the formats with which we talk then to the people and how to involve them. So a main point is a, a, a collaboration, and it's, it matches a little bit what Christian said. When you start thinking with a Portuguese journalist and a Polish journalist and a Romanian journalist about what could be a format to attract your audience in your country at one hand, and at, at the same time, making a link to the others in the other country and you go deeper in developing um, methods, formats and topics and the way you talk about that. So then you start um, having something in hand that maybe could work for a larger audience than, than your national audience without uh, re repeating the same narratives that Europe usually uses. And that's that's what we try with with enter. Um, we we call the system that we want to apply is um, log log local, which means we start local. We try to turn it on a European level, uh, see what is the best um, approach to to talk about it, and and bring it back to local, regional, or national audiences. The most tricky point, obviously, is not technology. I mean, you can do a lot um, remotely. You can do a lot digitally. That's That was maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, a real issue uh, for, for this kind of collaboration. It is no longer. 
the true uh, challenge is still language because you have to touch base with the people in their language. You cannot come across with English as a common language in, in, in Europe, for instance, particularly not if you turn to, let's say, non-cosmopolite audiences. Um, but there is also uh, plenty of development um, in, a, in the, pot the potential to, to adapt in other languages uh, much easier than you could do before. Um, I'm not saying simply subtitling. Uh, I'm saying adapting. Because this is one, uh, one, one experience we can bring in as, as, as Deutsche Welle. Um, we broadcast in 30 languages since 60 years. Um, and at the beginning, we had rebroadcasters that picked in our language the, uh, the, the respective products and put them on air. But this is no longer how we work. We work very collaboratively with a lot of partners all over the world. And the main idea is to learn from them what is the approach, what is the habit, what is the, the tone, what is the format, what is the storytelling principle that you need for your audience and how can we learn to deliver topics in this kind of, of, of shaping for your audience. So we, we turned uh, in, um, some years ago to a very collaborative um, way of working with rebroadcasters in the countries for which we uh, provide information. And we came up with a lot of formats that we never thought of before, before we started uh, more intensively to discuss with, with partners. That applies to partners in India as it does to partners in, 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 in Nairobi, for instance. But this experience is something we turned now in the ENTA project to provide a new perspective on European topics because we think there is a lack uh, on exchange uh, and on, on common debate space, particularly in social media across Europe. Despite uh, different different initiatives on, on uh, cross-border journalism or collaborative journalism. We think that we have a unique selling proposition with this ENTO project, but it's a pilot project. And it, it, it's a try. It's really a try. Yeah, yeah. I have a devil's advocate question to the two of you concerning this um, issue of potential audience, non-cosmopolitan uh, um, readers. But before um, asking that one, I would like to... Um, ask Christian what his learnings are about the question or the role of technology and uh, maybe also language when fostering the emergence of a European media landscape. How do you how do you cope with that? Um, and would you like to I don't know make more use of it? Do you see a greater potential in um, technology for your aim? Definitely. I mean, technology uh, regarding uh, the transformation of <laughs> how the media and communication works during the last decade or so, um, people can can read if they want uh, or access information um, online much easier. They can communicate with each other much easier. Um, but when it comes to concrete potential for cross-border journalism, for example, I think Uh, especially also what Patrick mentioned, the question of language and technology. Um, translation is getting, automatic translation, for example, is getting better and better. I think, uh, in the meantime, it's already possible to just go, if you would like to do it uh, on some media in another country and click uh, G-Translate, and you will, not perfectly, but probably get an idea. And I think we are just at the beginning. 
and this can also be used uh, by journalists whereas it's, it's not enough you need to you need probably more context if you don't know the specifics of the domestic um, situation um in general for example communication technologies we use them a lot uh, they are much more um uh, i don't know there was a huge change in the last five ten years how to communicate with each other journalists it was much more official before due to social media and and all these connections it, everyone is talking much more and openly with each other so people are used people don't have the I, i mean that's what we experience a lot when we just invite five journalists and tell them we have to work together now we invite them into our slack channel we invite them into a zoom meeting and and then we start working and um these kind of techniques definitely help to infrastructurally to to make this kind of cross-border journalism yeah okay i understand so so the sorry for jumping around but the devil's advocate question i have and it applies to the two of you is Could it be that the reason that cross-border journalism has not reached the mainstream yet is simply that there is not enough demand for it? First of all, um, some years ago, I, I, I was correspondent for ARD for radio in, in Rabat, based in Rabat. I, I was in Church of Western Africa. Western Africa and Africa as a whole took, I think, 1% of the whole reporting uh, in, the German, uh, in, in the German newspapers, right? While... As um, Christian said, uh, Germany still is in a very good position. We have a very good correspondent network uh, in, in, in Africa, etc. But it was a daily fight to convince the, uh, the, the, the newsroom in, in, in Frankfurt to, to take a piece when it was not a war piece from, from Africa. It was not relevant. So what I'm saying here is people look um, at their home affairs. Uh, they want to, to know what, what's around them. So we cannot expect people, and it was never the case, that people care about the world as a such to the same extent than things that are around them. The tricky point is um, what is important to them, and that, had ha that has heavily changed. Brussels, for people in Germany, was far away than Berlin before, and now we have a global world. So we look at Trump much more intensively than we have done maybe before. So we have to tackle this, this, this point that everything can be known at every uh, point in time, uh, which comes with platforms, which comes with Internet much faster than it was the case before. So news is global uh, and globally available. And the second thing is that um, still it's not easy to navigate uh, to all this, this, uh, this news and to find out what's really important to me. And this is the challenge for journalism. Because journalism in the, in the old times did a selection. Everything that was in your newspaper was important to you. The selection was made by the journalist. Now you make your selection yourself. You, 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 tell, uh, um, you, 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 you tell Alexa what you want to uh, listen to in the morning in your news briefing when you wake up. Okay, And I think that um, the, um, the selection role of media gets lost. And in turn, people need more media literacy to find out what's really important and how they want to consume it. And that is where we need to find an answer. Collaboration might be an interesting principle um, to better journalism and journalism performance, but I, I don't think it's a, it's a mean by its end. Mm -hmm. I think it's one part of a solution to reshape and reinvent journalism. 
because the, the true thing is to reinvent the role of journalism in a world where the news is on Facebook. Mm, I understand. If we understand this corporation as part of a solution, or let's say like one step, like a first step towards a um, transformation, is there something where you two would say we can learn from, let's say, investigative journalism? I'm, I'm asking this question because um, in our project, Daring New Spaces, um, one of the groups was um, um, focusing on the media sphere, the public sphere and media corporation, the future of Europe. And they were, they were saying they would like to see um, journalists today take an example from investigative journalism as they think it's quite more natural for them to cooperate on a daily basis and have more diversified newsrooms. So I would like to hear from you what you think about this. Is this a practical thing we can, like we can list today um, as best practices? Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, definitely. Um, I already mentioned before that, that uh, in the investigative journalism realm it's already very common because it's there is a necessity because you, a lot of topics are just cross-border, especially when it comes to international crime or uh, a lot of other topics. Um, but I think also in regard... Uh, yeah, I think... This idea is easily should easily be transferred to any other topics because, as most of the topics today, um, the world is interconnected, Europe is interconnected, and if you <laughs> if you constantly um, reproduce the illusion that it is not, and instead um, produce information that is uh, still caught in this idea that they are like this hermetically <laughs> um, divided national boxes. <laughs> It's just uh, not a very good information that you get. And if you don't get good information, then you mm -hmm. don't have a good uh, idea of what's going on. And if you don't have a good idea of what's going on, you're making false decisions or presumptions about everything. So I think it's also quality, um, especially we need to, to make people understand that it can be of a lot more quality if, if you put, if you establish uh, workflows with more uh, perspectives from other countries, etc. And um, there are also already examples for it, but also coming back to your um Uh, advocate, uh, devil's advocate question. I think, especially in Germany and other maybe richer countries in Europe, their their structures and they are not really interested in it because it's kind of questioning the whole idea of how uh, foreign reporting is working. And, um, it's, it's very challenging and it's annoying to build up new structures. And the the first step would be to acknowledge that there is. It doesn't mean to replace it, but that there is um, that the, the the standard way of how we do things uh, is quite often lacking multi-perspectivity. And as all things, if you do it in a very I don't know homogeneous way, it's probably very biased. And it's always more interesting if you get other people into the discourse, which is currently relatively not so much happening. If you would totally rethink the system. Again, I don't say it should be either or, but uh, as Patrick mentioned, this is definitely um, one way of, of uh, progressive uh, thinking about 
in which kind of direction should journalism develop. And it's just, for me, it's just ridiculous to think that it's 2021 and to see the low integration between medias, especially large medias in, in Europe. It's, it's totally lacking behind. And when we're talking about cosmopolit and so on, Normally, journalists who and and publishers, etc., they are also part of this group. So they probably would say that they feel European. They probably are um, ticking all the boxes when it comes to this idea of who is already European, uh, cosmopolitan. But their reality in their industry is is really lacking behind a lot, and it's it's um, it's, it's strange, and um, it should be uh, overcome hopefully in the next years and decades if, if i may it's a, that that is a um, an analysis that i only share part, partly because um, what i see is um, the the classical media which which, which are organized uh, somehow nationally despite the fact that um, maybe let's say rtl or bertelsmann or others are you know companies that operate in different countries in Europe, but what they do is they provide national media for every single market they're in and they combine the, you know, the, 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 the profits that's, that's business, but, but they are under threat by, by the, by the networks, by the Netflix and, and the Gaffas and MSN and Bing and, and all the others. While on the other hand, you have a lot of initiatives that you also are part of with NOST. Um, that try to uh, tackle journalism from a completely different perspective, let's say from an NGO perspective. When you look at uh, some some reporting today and you ask the question, who is doing the, the best reporting uh, on a specific topic, let's say on green economy or on, on climate, you find out that it is not uh, the classical media, but it can be Greenpeace who does a great job in reporting on, on, on fuel, oil industry, for instance, with classical means of journalism. Now we have to say that they are not journalists. They have no mandate. They come from a campaign perspective, but they are very good. They do a very good job in providing you journalistic products. So, and now here's the problem. On one hand, you have global networks that monopolize information or the selection of information to a very large extent. And on the other hand, you have a very low entry level. You have a very low entry level on, um, uh, on, on, on people that are not going to any, you know, quality control system that has been there in the past that are now influencers, bloggers, come up as a journalist with their own Instagram channels, are followed, etc. So wide open democracy. So what is the role of a, of a journalist, of a professional journalist in, in the future? And what is the role of media houses in the future? It's completely undecided. It's unknown land. But the development is from, from two sides. And I, I, I'm very curious to see how, how we sort that out. I think that journalism still is is really needed and there will be a renaissance of, of, of journalism, but it will be different than uh, as we saw it before. Um, mainly um, storytelling uh, will be a main issue. Investigation will be a main issue. Large research, collaborative research will be a main issue because all that is not the question on what happened, 
You can have everything that happens all over the world uh, recorded with a mobile phone, a phone from, a, from an eyewitness much faster than uh, what a journalist can do. Um, but the question is, what is behind? Explain the story, research on things that are not obvious, that are not the classical news. That will be the role of journalism. And I definitely think you need a public mandate for this kind of information to be provided. As you said, Christian, the the information um, and what people are told is is very much under under threat, not only from a business perspective, but also from a political perspective, and that applies to many many countries, even in in Europe. Um, our analysis on, on Deutsche Welle is that globally, um, spaces of free information and reliable information are shrinking. That's why we exist. That's that's where we are where we are focusing on, and that is a real threat. And the threat is uh, from from two ends. So don't don't forget that. I think <laughs> some, especially those investigative journalists suffering from shrinking spaces, know the question of financing very well. In the digital age, traditional media financing models have come under pressure. What ways are there of financing cross-border media and journalism without jeopardizing editorial independence? What role should the EU play in this, Patrick? Maybe you first. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, journalism has for a long time been a, a public good, information as a public good. So a public mandate is, in, in my perception, key uh, to preserve the um, objective or neutral information flow for citizens. I, I don't see any any commercial model that could guarantee independence for information. What I see is in that that's something that comes new, that um, new forms of, of citizen journalism, user-driven journalism, NGOs entering the, um, the, the media landscape and using journalist te techniques and technologies can obviously... Uh, from from a humanitarian point of view, from from a pro bono point of view, from a crowdsourced point of view, uh, provide very good information. The the problem here is the the, the mandate and the guarantee of of independence from from whatever influence. That's something that surely needs to be discussed. But I, I see I see a strong role. Of, of the public as, as, as a, a, a source for this kind of information that serves them to be well informed. It, it can also be on the basis of, 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 um, of um, uh, user-paid content, so to say. So like in the good old times where you, you buy your, your, uh, your newspaper every day on the, on the kiosk, that, that also is, is possible. But what's surely not possible is to, to let drive information by uh, big commercial platforms or, 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 or actors because you can not guarantee that their business interests are not um, overturning uh, all other interests that come with the, the fact to, to distribute and, and shape information. Christian, do you agree? And does that mean that the EU member states should partly pay this service? 
I think there is not only one way, of course. It, it should be tackled from all sides. So EU institutions, yes, they already fund uh, some uh, money for cross-border grants for individual journalists or for some structural building up of corporations, but it should be much more and also much more on a focus for cooperation between media to build up really long-lasting structures between editorial rooms from all over Europe, from different countries, and um, yeah, also make it attractive for private media players. Of course, they are not the only ones who can guarantee um, uh, the public good of, of, of uh, information through journalism, as Patrick said, but it's still important to get also the private players interested in it, maybe make more incentives for them to invest more in these infrastructures, and also the media themselves, be they private or publicly funded or independent, um, they should also encourage their journalists on a micro level and their freelancers to work cross-border and collaboratively because it is still something that is uh, on the micro level uh, still a different, difficult task for journalists who are actually uh, collaborating to, to get their stories into the media. So there we also need a shift there. Um, so in general, I would like to see a much more structural approach from all sides and also uh, from, if you're talking about the EU institutions, but also if we're talking about big players or we're talking about uh, independent media, a much more bolder approach and uh, also to to really foster the exchange of journalists and media makers and managers all over Europe. Yeah, you're advocating for more incentives to create longer lasting infrastructure. I, from my side, would like to advocate for a longer lasting podcast because I've got tons of further questions on my list and on my mind that would be worth discussing. But unfortunately, we will not have the time to do this here. However, for those of you who would like to learn more about cross-border journalism and media cooperation, we have prepared three recommendations that will help you to understand more about the challenges and the prospects of a more European media landscape. Every Talking Podcasts episode brings to you our three top recommendations of further readings, other podcasts, videos or projects that will help you delve deeper into the topic. I will go first, if that is okay, and then ho hand over to you, Christian, and then Patrick. My recommendation is inspired by one of our policy fellows at Das Progressive Zentrum. Johannes Hilje, who is a political advisor with a focus on communications, wrote a book about how pu a publicly funded social network may finally build a European public sphere. For our English-speaking audience, in the show notes, you can find the links to two interviews, one with Deutsche Welle and the other with the International Politics and Society Journal, in which he outlines his main ideas. For our German-speaking audience, there is also a link to the book in the show notes. Christian, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a relatively new platform launched last year. It's called forum.eu. It is a website which um, selects best articles, so the, the editors say, <laughs> on Europe from, from leading publishers and translate these articles into multiple European languages. I think it's in English, French, German, Greek, Polish, Spanish. And um, this is not basically not a new idea. For example, we at Ost, we do Eurotopics since 10 years where we also translate media from all about uh, uh, from all around Europe. But what I like about this is that 
It's actually young European entrepreneurs. It's a startup. It's not. Uh, it's like a commercial uh, idea, and and they 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 thought it, it's worth to invest in in this kind of European uh, audience. Uh, they're trying to to monetize it, and um, they also uh, try to um, you know distribute the the money that they get from readers to the media um, who's participating, who they are translating in the different countries. So this is also their approach uh, to, to kind of strengthen the European public uh, sphere. And, and I like it because it's a private initiative, because I would, I, I think without, um, for example, bigger players uh, who really say, hey, we, we are also identifying us as Europeans, we think it's important to invest. So there's also partly a, a normative mission behind that. And to invest really money into this because a lot of times they they having much better skill sets and experience with, with how to reach audiences. Um, I think it's a nice step, and also the the content is is, is nice if you want to read uh, different articles from different countries in Europe. That is true. For those of you who don't know it yet, please find forum.eu in our show notes. What do you want to recommend to our listeners, Patrick? I would like to recommend um, two things. One is an upcoming um, media product that is uh, will be launched the first of, of April this year. It's called Enter.net, Enter uh, without the second E. It's a completely new social media platform that is uh, driven by Deutsche Welle, France Media Monde, the external audiovisual services of France and Germany, together with nine other European partners. And yeah, it, it is a, a platform for young Europeans to discuss and debate future common life in, 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 in Europe uh, on, on a basis where mainly non-cosmopolites, so not the Erasmus generation, is, is called to have a say and is involved in, in a debate about the future of, uh, of Europe. It's mainly based on, it will be based on social media channels, but it will have also a kind of landing page that will be launched on 1st of, of, of April. So check that out, enter.net. Uh, and if you can wait, this uh, new new um, collaborative uh, pro product or, or project, uh, pan-European media, uh, then uh, maybe have a look at Peter Pomerantsev's uh, book, This is Not Propaganda. This is a At first hand, this is really not about public spheres, but it, it goes really to the roots of what we are challenging here because he wrote about the perception of truth and, and the fact that it has weaponized in the modern politics um, to, to digital media, obviously to the internet and, and um, to, to social media. It, it, it focuses on, your, in, uh, on Russia But it is not limited on, on Russia because we are talking about soft power here um, and the way that uh, truth is, is, uh, is perce perceived and, and, and weaponized, uh, as, I, as I said before. So if we want to, if we want to know why uh, public media or public sphere or uh, pan-European uh, communication sphere is important, I think one reason is, is also the fact that we are facing This, this, uh, this tremendous propaganda that comes with, um, with, with social media, that comes with, with, with internet, with big platforms, and that is really jeopardizing democracy as a whole. And we need to find ways to, to counter that very smartly. So, um, enter.net, 
from 1st of April. And in the meanwhile, read, this is not propaganda, adventures in the war against reality from Peter Pomerantsev. Thank you, Patrick, for those recommendations. I've got the 1st of April already in my calendar to check out the launch and we're looking forward. Patrick and Christian, thanks a lot for you both for joining the first episode of Talking Progress. In our next episode, Polish artist, editor and activist Anna Krenz and the Green EU politician Terry Reinke will discuss how EU institutions and European civil society can work together to defend women's rights in Poland and elsewhere. Thank you uh, for listening and we hope to welcome you back soon at Talking Progress. Bye bye.